Well, Pastor Caroline is on holiday, so you'll be seeing me for three straight Sundays. We're going to do a new series on uh, uh, discipleship uh, to kickstart the year. And so we are going to address nine Sundays on this topic of discipleship essentials. Just revisiting the basic and uh, look at the scripture and say, what does the disciples look like? What are we supposed to be doing as a church? If you look at our mission statement, it simply says that we are to follow God, walk by faith, and lead people to be disciples of Jesus Christ. So what exactly are we leading people to become disciples of Jesus Christ? But what does the disciples actually look like? And so we have a few things that we want to explore together about discipleship. Uh, Next week, I'll be talking about discipleship and baptism, discipleship in the church. And then we look at a few marks of what a real disciple of Jesus Christ actually looks like. So today, I thought I would begin this series on the cause of discipleship. I can assure you that this is a difficult sermon to listen to. Uh, At the same time, it's even harder to preach. But at the same time, I want to be faithful to God's Word. As a pastor, I'm only concerned about what the Word of God says. I'm, into, I'm not into political correctness, but I'm into biblical correctness. And so while it is difficult to listen to of what Jesus laid down, the cause of discipleship, uh, but it's essential and necessary for us as believers to, to revisit some of this basic and evaluate our hearts and say, am I going the right way? About 27 years ago, 1993, I joined Operation Mobilization, OM. It's a mission organization. Some of us were aware of do laws, ship, and all that. And, uh, and I joined the ministry for two years. I went to Indian South, subcontinent. I went to India, Pakistan, Nepal, Afghanistan. And I spent two years there. And be proud to going on this journey, there are a few things you have to do. And one of the things we have to do is we have to read a number of books, uh, and one of the books that was, uh, we are asked to read is called True Discipleship by William MacDonald. It's a very short book. You actually can get it from the internet. I think it's an e-book for free. Uh, it's, it's just filled with many sh- short chapters on certain topics. And just straight to the point. Pum, 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 pum. You know, some of us, we like... You know, when we are a bit more aware of certain things, you, you just like the gist of it. You know, you don't have to go one big circle and one big round. So some, 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 kind, some books are quite helpful. It just straight away tells you what it is without having to go through one big round to, to make a point in a sense. And then such is this book. Let me just read to you uh, the, 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 the first chapter of it, The Terms of Discipleship. It begins with this. It said, True Christianity is an all-out commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ. The Savior is not looking for men and women who will give their spare evenings to Him, or just their weekends, or just their years of retirement. Rather, He seeks those who will give Him first place in their lives. Nothing less than unconditional surrender could ever be a fitting response to his sacrifice at Calvary. As the hymn said, love so amazing, so divine, could never be satisfied with less than our souls, our lives, and our all. 
The Lord Jesus made stringent demands on those who would be His disciples. Demands that are all but overlooked in this day of luxury living. Too often we look upon Christianity as an escape from hell and a guarantee of heaven. And beyond that, we feel that we have every right to enjoy the best that this life has to offer. We know that there are those strong verses on discipleship in the Bible, but we have difficulty reconciling them with our ideas of what Christianity should be. We can accept the fact that soldiers give their lives for patriotic reasons, or firemen give their lives for the book's fire. We do not think it is strange that communists give their lives for political reasons, but that blood, sweat, and tears should characterize the life of a follower of Christ somehow seems remote and hard to grasp. And yet, the words of the Lord Jesus are clear enough. There is scarcely any room for misunderstanding if we accept them at their face value. And then he went on to spell out the terms of discipleship. Good book, True Discipleship. Easy to read. If you want to grab hold of this book, uh, just come and grab it from me. The uh, Bishop Festo, uh, of Uganda. He said, if you have thought that your Christianity could be a lovely, selfish thing that you could enjoy and sit and have a good time and clap your hands and say your prayers and forget all other people, you are wrong. Uh, that is some kind of churchianity, but it has strayed away from the cross. It is not Christianity. And so today I want to give you some pointers from Luke chapter 14 as we look at this text, I want to give you five points on what Jesus says about discipleship. What Jesus tells us about the cost of discipleship. And then I'll set the context so that we can, next over the next couple of weeks, we can fill in the, this bigger context on the cost of discipleship. Let me just read to you uh, Luke chapter 14. It's hard words and it's tough words uh, to listen to. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And Jesus turning to them, he said these words. He said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and you are not able to finish it, Everyone who sees it will ridicule you, saying this person began to build and wasn't able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able 
with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000. If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. Three times it says that in this passage. Large crowds. Oh, I forgot to fill in verse 34 and 35. It says, salt is good, but if, but if it loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is fit neither for the soy nor for the manure pile. It is thrown out. And Jesus, often when he said some very difficult teaching, he, was, he will always complete with this sentence, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear, knowing that some will not hear. And I hope that you will have ears to hear of what Jesus is about to say and spell out the cost of following Jesus. The first verse says, large crowds were traveling with Jesus. As I read the gospel, I always see that Jesus somehow has difficulty with large crowds. He doesn't seem to be impressed with large crowds. He often wants to go a little bit further because he knows that people who follow him with all kinds of reasons. People who follow, come to Jesus with all kinds of motivations and people come to church with all kinds of reasons in their mind and he just wants to bring home the real thing. So he's not particularly impressed with large crowds. And he often like to, at the end already, will pull aside, withdraw, and just talk to his small little band of disciples. And, and more interested in small, authentic, genuine crowd, group of people that will follow. He seems to distrust a large following. He's aware for many of them, this was just a popular movement, a kind of happening rather than any deep commitment. And you just need to look at John chapter 6. Jesus literally says some of the harsh, hardest teaching that he turns away almost 10,000 people. And then he has to turn to his disciples, do you now also want to leave me? And Jesus probably, I mean, Peter probably spoke the best word, where else can we go? You are the Messiah. Where else can we go? And so he seems to be interested in small group, really some genuine, authentic Followers, like what John Wesley said, give me a hundred men and women who love God and fear sin, and I'll change the world. I just need a hundred people who love God but fear sin, and I will change the world. The point is authentic, genuine people who work. You only need a few in that sense. You only need a few. And Jesus seems to be, to be very disdained about large crowd following him and he wants to just kind of, kind of go down and, and issue a lot of challenges. In some sense, almost like turning people, deliberately turning people away. Deliberately push out the challenge. If you can't take the heat, then get out of the kitchen. You can't, can't do it, don't, don't, don't consider. He almost always seems to be doing that. 
And it kind of puzzled me, isn't it? As a Christian, we want people to come, people to come, you know. We, we try people to come to become Christian, in a sense. But Jesus often the other way around. Even the rich young ruler come to Jesus, Jesus turning away. And did you realize that when he, when, when he refused to do what Jesus asked him to do, Jesus actually didn't call him back. Jesus let him go. Jesus never said, all right, I know, maybe in the process you will change your mind as you go along. You can start off with a little bit first, maybe 10%, and you know, later on. But Jesus never do that. He seems to think, well, if you're not willing, that's it. When I was young, I used to follow my grandmother to sell fish. My, my grandmother was a fishmonger. And after my parents died, I lived with her for a little while. I often go to market with her, and, she, and people come to buy fish from her. They'll bargain and bargain and bargain. And she said, no, no, no. And as they go away, she'll say, oh, come back, come back, come back. You know, I'll give you this price. We all know when you go to China or somewhere uh, you know, shopping, you make sure you bargain. Okay? When you go to China, make sure you bargain. And you don't just bargain a little bit. You slice 80%. If you don't slice down by 80%, you are in trouble. If something they want to sell you $100, you must say $20. Don't say $80. And start from bottom and work yourself upwards. You straight away, you say $80, they say, okay, because that's what they want. So they will start high. But Jesus never do that. He will never do that concerning what discipleship. He will never do that. It's either all or none. And so here in this passage in Luke chapter 14, there are five things that Jesus posed a challenge to this crowd of people. And I actually don't know how, whether they, 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 what did they do to it. The first one is, he tells us discipleship is about allegiance. The word allegiance. Your allegiance to him must be complete, not half-hearted. Every other allegiance must pale in comparison. Your allegiance to him must be complete. Every other allegiance must pale before it. This is what exactly Jesus means when he says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Look at that. The allegiance is to Christ, number one. All other relationship by comparison is almost hatred. Of course, we all know it doesn't literally mean to go and hate our parents uh, and dislike people or dislike our wives. You know, it's, it, we all know it's hyperbole in the sense to push something to an extreme to make a point. We all have that kind of saying to push something to an extreme just to just to make a point. Because uh, Jewish idiom is like that. They don't have something like love less. It's either love or hate. If I say I love vanilla but hate chocolate, I don't really hate chocolate in the sense. It's just to say that vanilla is my favorite. It's just a way of saying that this is the priority. It's a hyperbole, an overstatement in order to make a point with maximum impact. To paint the situation, to bring in the maximum impact. And we have seen this before in Jesus' style, isn't it? Even in Sermon on the Mount, if your eyes causes you to sin, what do you do? Gouge it out, but we don't really do it. If your hand causes you to do what do you do, you chop it off. You don't really do it. It's just a point. Or a camera passing through the eye of a needle. Or accepting violence and robbery, robbery without resistance. It's just a way of 
pushing something to the maximum to, maxim, to, get a, to make a point with maximum impact or the lock in your eyes. You know, it's just a way of saying. Jesus is simply contrasting our allegiance to Jesus in the strongest possible way. No earthly tie, however close, must take precedence over our allegiance to and obedience of Jesus. He's number one by far. No person even comes close. William Temple says this. He said, above all else, do not touch Christianity unless you are willing to put him first. I promise you a miserable existence if you put him second. Do not touch Christianity unless you're willing to put Jesus first. I promise you a miserable existence if you put him second. Or C.S. Lewis say, put the first thing first, and then you get a second thing. If you put the second thing first, you get neither. It's not that you put the second things when you get the second thing. You put the second thing first, you get neither. Jesus is like that. When you put Jesus in the center of your life, every other relation falls into place correctly, rightly so, because He will dictate everything how you live your life. And all other relationships will fall into the rightful place. In fact, you love your wife more, you love your parents more, you love your children more when you put Christ first. It's not the other way around in that sense. John Stott, an English statesman who died a couple of years ago, remained single all his life. I read about him. Uh, he says this, The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow Him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. The result is the great scandal of Christendom today, so-called nominal Christianity. And in countries to which Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They have allowed themselves to, some, to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and they dismiss religion as escapism. So the first thing that Jesus spelled out about the cause of discipleship is allegiance to Christ. All other relationships pale in comparison. The second thing that Jesus says about the cause of discipleship is carry the cross. Carry the cross or die for me. You must be constantly ready to die for Christ if necessary, as you follow Jesus. Somebody said that if you don't know what you're living for, then try to ask yourself, what are you willing to die for? If the things that you're willing to die for is the very reason that you're living for. I often like to challenge people that. If you don't know what you're living for, then ask yourself, what are you willing to die for? The thing that you're willing to die for is the person that you're living, or is the thing or the person that you're living 
for. Here in verse 27, Jesus went on to say, after talking about allegiance, whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciples. And then the next question is, what does carrying the cross mean, isn't it? It means that we must accept the death of our own self-directed life. Die to ourselves daily and be willing to face whatever physical, emotional, or social persecution that ensues and follow Jesus. The cross is not some physical infirmity or mental anguish that sometimes we like to, to say. The cross is not caring for a, a sick child. That's, that's a responsibility. The cross is not putting up with a cranky supervisor or manager or an unfair teacher or a bossy relative. This is not carrying your cross. The cross which Jesus talks about is a suffering that is ours because of our relationship to Jesus. As a result of my relationship with Jesus, as a result of my position and my stand that as, as a Christian, and therefore I face persecution, that is my cross. That is what Matthew chapter 5 says, isn't it? Towards the end of uh, the Sermon of the Mount, Jesus said these words, isn't it? Blessed are those who what? Where people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because you are nasty, because you are pain in the neck, or because you are lazy. Not because of that. Because of me. Because of righteousness. Because you as a believer, you take a position, and as a result, you suffer some sort of persecution. Whether it is a prime minister who stand up as a Christian, or whether it's Israel Falau, who stand up at that position, they are being persecuted, that is carrying the cross. That's not being nasty. So to take up the cross is about dying to ourselves. Dying to our self-directed self and live for Jesus. Because He redeemed us, He saves us, now we belong to Him. And C.T. Start, one of the authors that, that challenges me as a young believer, uh, says that it's either you have to thief, it's either you have to be a thief to keep what is not yours, otherwise, otherwise you have to surrender everything to Him. Martin Luther said, a religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. A religion that gives nothing, costs nothing, and suffers nothing is worth nothing. Something that is valuable will always cost. We all know that. Something that is valuable will always cost. And so second thing that Jesus spelled out about cost of discipleship is carry your cross, die to yourself daily. Because this self will always resurrect daily. And we have to learn to crucify it daily. Not once off, daily. Because you will come back, you will come back, you will come back. And thirdly, Jesus went on to say, count the cost. Because he knows it's so high demand and expectation, he went on to spell out, count the cost. And from verse 28 to 32, he gave two illustrations that we just read through. Count the cost. You must count the cost before you start to determine if you are committed enough to follow me. If you realize that you aren't, then don't even begin. We hear about about Prince Harry and Meghan wanting to step back 
Maybe because can't take the pressure. Maybe because can't, can't hack it. Can't hack of what media says of you, say it, all kinds of things. But such is life. You take on certain role, you just have to ride with it. You just have to get both the good and the bad side of what it means to be a public figure. Count the cost. Verse 28 says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? For if you lay the foundation and are not able to finish it, everyone was, who sees it would ridicule you. Imagine this building is, is half built here. What do you think the, the neighborhood will say? Imagine we leave it like that. We don't finish it. So Jesus is basically saying, well, you don't have the willingness to see through, don't even attempt the journey. Discipleship is a decision that demands the utmost seriousness and commitment. And then he went on to say another example about a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. I'm sure Iran and America, they thought about this too, isn't it? the consequence, whether or not able, all these kind of things that, that talks about before they proceed with an all-out attack of each other. They consider. Jesus is basically saying, consider ahead of time whether or not you are willing to become His follower. It will take everything you have and more. Discipleship will figure in every future decision of your life. The will of God will be first in your priority from now on and you don't have the ability or willingness to give or to keep following Jesus, then don't begin. Don't move forward a battle that you will surely lose. You know, there was a story about uh, a pig and a chicken. They were talking one day. They said, it's Farmer John's birthday tomorrow. Why don't we celebrate for Father John or Farmer John? And then this uh, chicken came up with a fantastic idea. Say, why don't we cook Farmer John bacon and egg? <laughs> you know the story. So the pig will simply say, well, for you it's very easy, you just lay an egg. But for me, it's total commitment. It's total commitment. So Jesus often says, count the cost. But of course, I know sometimes it's difficult because emotionally, when you're not involved, you, you, you can be easily making all kinds of decisions, especially emotionally you are not involved. And that is why we often easy to tell people to forgive, but emotionally we are not involved in the situation. It's very hard to, to completely identify. And so only Jesus can fully identify with us. Only Jesus. Because emotionally... You may know the job, you may know mentally what it goes through, but emotionally, 
you're not involved. And when emotionally you're not involved, you cannot fully comprehend the situation. So I go to God in prayer. Go to friends. Sometimes <coughs> they give you advice that you know, you know, it doesn't resonate because they don't understand. They don't understand enough. Emotionally, they're not connected. So count the cost. Jesus said, count the cost before you follow me. He was talking to large crowds. He's trying to kind of, kind of see who are the one that will come, you know, who are the real one that will that was willing to do. And in Luke chapter 9, it talks about that, isn't it? Jesus, I want to follow you, one person says. And Jesus turned around, foxes have holes, but in the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. You sure you're going to follow me? I don't even have a place to sleep. Every day wandering around, disciples, walking around from town to town. You sure you're going to follow me? They kind of pose the, the kind of challenge to, to the disciples. The fourth one is give up. I should add in the word everything. And after he talks about allegiance, after he talks about dying to yourself, carrying the cross, he went on to spell the cost, think about first, and then he went on to say, in the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. The word give up everything simply means say farewell in Greek or take leave. Figuratively, it means renounce or give up. But what does it mean by give up everything? We all have something. We all have car, we have a house, we have clothes. We have some you know, extra hobby things that we keep. And all that. What do you mean by give up everything? I don't think Jesus is simply asking us to become an ascetic. You know, give up everything, be a monk, live in a jungle and, and just meditate. And to go barefooted instead of wear shoes or to live in the mud houses. Even where living in the mud houses, still living in a house, you own something. But he is simply saying that the disciple of Jesus must be willing to make everything secondary to following him. We must be willing to part with anything that hinders our discipleship and see ourselves as a steward, not as an owner. We own nothing but steward of everything. We are an owner of none and steward of all is to, to view that all that we have is nothing. That we are only a steward. We are only a manager. We are not an owner. We don't own it. It all belongs to God. You must give up everything. There's this story about a man who saw this pearl. And then he says to this merchant, I want this pearl. How much is it? And then the sellers simply say, well, it's very expensive. And he said, how much? He said, a lot. Well, do you think I could buy it? The man asked. He said, oh, yes, said the merchant. Everyone can buy it. But I thought you said it was very expensive. He said, I did. Well, how much? He said, everything you have, says the seller. He said, all right, I'll buy it. Okay, how much do you have? He said, well, I have $10,000 in the bank. He said, good, $10,000 is mine. What else? That's all I have. Nothing more? Well, I have a few dollars in my pocket, in my wallet. Say, how much? Let's see. Say, I have $100 here. Oh, that's my too. What else do you have? Say, that's all. Nothing else. Say, where do you live? The seller asked. <coughs> Say, in my house. 
Yes, I own a home. The seller writes down, Oh, house, alright, it's mine now. <laughs> Where do you expect me to sleep then? In my camper van? Oh, you have a camper van, that's my too. Am I supposed to see my car? Oh, you have a car too, the car is mine too. Look, you have taken my money, my house, my camper van, my cars. Where is my family going to live? Ah, so you have a family. Yes, I have a wife and three kids. Uh-huh, they are all mine. They are all mine. And suddenly the seller exclaims, Oh, I almost forget. You yourself, you are also mine. Everything becomes mine. Your wife, your children, your house, your money, your cars, and you too. And then he goes on. He said, now listen to me. I will allow you to use all these things for the time being. But don't forget that they are all mine. Just as you are. And whenever I need any of them, you must give them up because I am now the owner. That is the meaning of give up everything for God. We are only a steward. Stewardship. And we do not own everything that we have. We are only given by God to entrust for a time being all that God has given to us. Whether it's possession or relationship. But it all belongs to God. And when God wants it, we must surrender all to Him. The last thing that Jesus says about the cause of discipleship is you must retain your distinctive flavor. <clears throat> you sworn allegiance to Jesus, you carry up the cross to follow Jesus, you count the cost, you give up all, seeing yourself as a steward in this world that we live in for a number of years, and then the last thing is you must retain your distinctive flavor as you continue to live on this earth. You must retain the distinctive flavor of uncompromised disciples. You say, salt is good. In the prayer meeting, we were just talking about that. Uh, Jim was joking about this. Salt is good. So those who dislike salt, salt is good. Salt is good, but it loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? Salt was considered an essential of life. It was used for both flavoring and preservation. In the days before refrigeration, salt is a way to preserve meat and food. But we used to purchase salt from say, way or coast or whatever we go to. But in Jesus' day, salt was obtained from evaporation from the Dead Sea. But it was far from pure as a result. It was often mixed with greater or lesser concentrations of other salt. It is possible for all the sodium chloride to be leached out of a mixture of salt so that it's left, is stale and useless. Of course, it is impossible for salt to lose its tank, but it is possible for what appears to be salt to have all its true salt washed out of it. And then, even though the appearance remains, the essence is lost. And so such is the case. 
that Jesus wants us to remain, retain a distinctive flavor as a salt while we live in this world. Let this salt remain so that we can be effective, so that we can continue to be salt and light, to continue to preserve the society from rotting too quickly. Leslie Newbegin wrote a book called The Gospel in a Pluralist Society. And I like particularly one quote that he mentioned in the book. He said, I am suggesting that the only answer, the only interpretation of the gospel is a congregation of men and women who believe it and live by it. I am, of course, not denying the importance of many activities by which we seek to challenge public life with the gospel, evangelistic campaigns, distribution of the Bibles and Christian literature, on and on that we all do. But I'm saying that all these are secondary and that they have power to accomplish their purpose only as they are rooted in and lead back into a believing community. In other words, when you can no longer tell people about God, you have to show them God in your life. Isn't that what this world that we live in nowadays? When you can no longer tell people about God, you have to show them God in your life. Salt. Retain. Distinctive flavor as a believer. We're going to spell it out over the next couple of weeks on the marks of a believer, marks of a disciple according to the scripture. And we are going to challenge you to be an authentic and genuine and true disciple of Jesus Christ. Charles Stott, as I mentioned him just now, uh, one of the authors that early days of my Christian life has challenged my own uh, belief, my own thinking, and moving me down towards uh, full-time ministry. He wrote a tiny little book that you can get an e-book for free on the internet called Chocolate Soldier. It's a very confronting kind of book. Chocolate Soldier. Because Charles Stott is a hero. Charles Stott is a it's, a, it's an incredible, uh, incredible. He's, he's, a, he's a controversial figure in mission, in the modern mission, because he used morphine. He was ill, he used morphine to stay away. He's so determined to translate the Bible. He's so determined in many sense. He's a multi-millionaire. He was a Cambridge Seven. He played cricket for, for England in the, in the 19th century, and he had a wealthy father who died, gave millions of dollars to him, and he literally gave it all away to follow Christ. He became a missionary in India, in China, and in Africa, and founded the WEC movement. And he wrote this book called Chocolate Soldier. He said, Heroism is the lost court, the missing note of present day Christianity. Every true soldier is a hero. A soldier without heroism is a chocolate soldier. Every true Christian is a soldier of Christ. A hero par excellence, braver than the bravest, scorning the soft seduction of peace and her oft-repeated warnings against hardship, disease, danger, and death, whom he counts among his bosom friends. The otherwise Christian is a chocolate Christian, dissolving in water and melting at the smell of fire. Sweeties they are, bonbons, lollipops, living their lives on a glass dish or in a cardboard box, each clad in his soft clothing, 
a little frill, white paper to preserve his dear little delicate constitution. God never was a chocolate manufacturer and never will be. God's men are always heroes. And then he went on and said, in Scripture, you can trace their giant foot tracks down the sands of time. And he went on to list Moses, David, everybody who is a hero in God's sight. Chocolate soldier. And so my friend, I said to you earlier, it's a difficult message to listen to. Uh, but such is the word of Jesus, the words of Jesus, challenging us the cost of discipleship and reminding us of the cost that is involved in taking up the cross to follow Jesus. Salvation in Jesus is not merely a transaction. It is at heart a covenantal relationship. And no relationship lasts without loyal commitments and actions. Because the one who redeems us also calls us into costly discipleship. Jesus' commands to follow me is both a gift and a demand. It's both a gift and demand. So may you uh, take stock. May we go home and ask the Lord to reevaluate our hearts as we begin 2020, what it means to be a disciple of Christ. What are we as a church meant to be doing together in this part of the world? As I said before a few weeks ago, the cost of following Christ is great. But the cost of not following Him is even greater. So may we take stock, may we evaluate, may we ask God to help us to change and willing to pay the cost and the price of being a follower of Jesus Christ in this 21st century which we desperately need so much of us. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for challenging me as I read your word, as I study your word, as I allow your word to seep into my mind and my heart and my emotions. And it's very uncomfortable. It's very uncomfortable for me to revisit this heart of what it means to be a disciple. Lord, you are seeking to bring us further along the journey. And we want to walk at our own pace. We want to, we want to be free to take whatever side trails presented to us. But you are insisting on becoming the leader. And it is non-negotiable. Lord, I've learned long time ago that I can't rely on my own will and determination. I'm weak. I'm fallible. And today, I call upon you afresh for help to follow you faithfully. Forgive my sins of willfulness and selfishness. Forgive my grasping at the props of the world. Forgive my flimsy excuses that I give all the time. Restore to me the full saltiness of one of your own. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. 
May we once again rededicate our lives to you and bring back heroism into our faith and never be a chocolate soldier. But instead, rain or shine, we will say, Jesus is mine. That we will stand for you in troubled times. We look to you for strength in difficult times, in this challenging society that we live in, that is eroding fast and quick of the Christian virtues and the values that has so shaped this country for so many years. Uh, we need, Lord, courage. Courage like Daniel. Courage like Joseph. Courage like Esther. In this time, it's not for us to retreat, but for us to march and do mighty work for you. Thank you, Lord. You're good, God. As we sing this closing song, uh, this is our prayer to you. Lord, take our lives and let it be. Our dedication song to you for today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please stand as we uh, finish off this morning with this beautiful hymn that we